0: Good morning. Good to see you today. And uh, we are about to wrap up uh, our 10th week in Galatians as we finish the book out this morning. And so, if you've got a Bible or a Bible on a device, uh, you can go ahead and find Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. And we're going to be there through chapter 6, verse 18. And as Spencer said, Easter is only two weeks from today, and so an exciting time, an incredible opportunity we have, and stewardship we've been given uh, to be able to share the gospel with people. There are people in your life that will respond to an invitation at Easter that won't at any other time. Um, I really believe that. And so who are you inviting? What neighbor, what friend, what family members? And so if you want to be a blessing to your neighbors and to your coworkers, uh, invite them to Easter services. Because the gospel's going to be shared there. There's no greater way that we can bless people than to share the gospel with them. And so we want to be about the business of, in, of getting people in front of the gospel because it's the gospel that changes lives. And as people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel, uh, we want to see others transformed by the power of the gospel. You say, why is that? Well, it's because you can't experience the love of God in your life in a tangible way and not love others and want others to experience the love of God in a tangible way in their life through the power of the gospel. Believers in Christ Jesus, as we have been learning, are set free from sin, from shame, from guilt, from works righteousness, and all the things we discussed in Galatians. But we are set free For something. We are set free to love others. We are set free to serve others. We are set free to do good in the lives of others. Rather than using others and looking down on others. And being jealous of and envying others. We love and serve and do good to others. But we'll only do that. As we've been set free by the gospel to do that. We'll only do that if we're walking in sync with the Holy Spirit. Empowered by Him. uh, Walking in line with Him as we talked about last week. In the Spirit empowered life. Now. That was last week, living that spirit-empowered life. This week, we're talking about what that practically looks like in our lives as we connect with others. What does the fruit of the Spirit, as we saw those fr- the fruit of the Spirit last week, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right there in Galatians 5, what does the fruit of the Spirit look like when it's fleshed out, when it's lived out, life on life? What does it look like? Is it just attitudes we have, or does it have a practical outworking in our lives as we connect with others? And I firmly believe that Christ's life character will always produce Christ-like activity. You can't have the character of Christ in your life and not have the activity of Christ, the actions that Christ would want you to have in your life. And one of the main things that we'll notice about the fruit of the Spirit, when you look at it, is how they impact how we relate to others. Think about it. Love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness and goodness. Does that have an impact on how you relate to other people? Yes. It has a huge impact, not just on our relationship with God, on how we relate to others. See, spirit-filled people are, yes, Christ-centered people, but they're also others-oriented people. Uh, The Spirit of God orients our lives off of us and from being inward-focused to being outward-focused. And when we're only focused on ourselves, then that is a telltale sign that we're not really walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're not really surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Being spirit-led people enables us to be free, to love and to do good to others, to live in a genuine, helpful community with believers and to be a blessing to the world around us. That's just what it looks like, practically, to be Christian. All right. So look with me uh, at Galatians 5, 25-6, 10. The big idea this morning that I want you to get, uh, I'm going to read that chunk of Scripture, then we'll come back to the last several verses of Galatians at the end of our time together. But I want us to have this big idea in our head this morning. Here it is. I think it's on the screen for you. By the power of the gospel, we are alive to God and empowered by God to serve and do good to others. By the power of the gospel, we are alive to God and empowered by God to serve and do good to others. Now that's real freedom. So look with me. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Galatians 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We read that last week. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now let's pause there. We're going to read the last several verses at the end of our, towards the end of our time together. I want us to spend most of our time though here on, this, on these verses. And then we'll get to Paul's closing and why that's important to us this morning. And I want you to kind of see just a, a, few, a few big points that kind of make sense of the big idea that I read to you. Uh, The first thing we need to see here in verses 25 and 26, and even down in verses 7 and 8 of Galatians 6, we're not really going to go verse by verse this morning. We're going to move around it a little bit this morning. I want us to pull back here and kind of get the big idea of what Paul is saying. The first thing he wants us to see is how we are to live, right? Because how we are to live is going to affect what we are to do. So how are we to live? We are to live by the Spirit. We talked about that last week. Walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, living by the Spirit, all synonyms. We'll see here in a minute, sowing to the Spirit, right there in that same line of thinking. So Christians are to live by and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We're to live lives that are Spirit-empowered and in line with what the Holy Spirit wants, as revealed in His Word. So we're to walk in the path laid out for us by the Holy Spirit. Christians are those that are alive to God and empowered by God. The Spirit of God has given us spiritual life. Uh, when we believe the gospel, we are given spiritual life so that we no long, we, we, we're no we changed on the inside. We're, we're giving new hearts. And we have the Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. And we are alive to God and dead to sin. And so our, our lives are no longer dominated by the flesh, but now they're dominated by God, dominated by His Spirit. But we're also to be empowered by God to live in light of that new life we have. Now notice the warning, though. The warning is that we would become conceited. Let us not become conceited in verse 26. Now that word in the Greek literally means empty or vain glory. John Stott writes about it, quote, The word here denotes somebody who has an opinion of himself which is empty, vain, or false. He is cherishing an illusion about himself or he's just plain conceited. The idea here is we're not to be proud we're not to think too much of ourselves. or to think incorrectly of ourselves in one direction or another. Conceit is of the flesh. This empty glory is of the flesh. It's of our fallen nature. The spirit-led person thinks in terms of identity with Christ. Thinks in terms of, we understand we are sinners. We're so sinful that we needed God to save us. But we're so loved that he was willing to save us. Right? And so that's how we're, we begin to... Relate and to think in terms of our identity with Christ, as opposed to being too puffed up, or as opposed to being someone that just feels completely unloved and unlovable. We begin to think biblically. Conceit, though, shows up. He he says here in two main ways: provoking and envy. Provoking. This is the person that thinks of themselves as better than other people, superior to other people. Provoking is the idea of competing and challenging to contest. It's the it's a game of comparison. The person may tend to look down on others and want to prove I'm better than you than this, right? I'm, I'm better than you in this area of life or in that area in life or in this area spiritually. And I want to stake out a way to prove that. That's provoking. That comes from empty conceit or empty empty glory, conceit. Envying, that's the person that thinks of themselves maybe inferior to others sometimes because they long for what other people have. Or they think so much of themselves that they can't believe That God has done this in that person's life. Or blessed that person with this. But not them. Because they think so much of themselves. That they deserve anything anybody else has got. Envy. Wanting what others have. And actually it's usually going to the point of being kind of embittered against people. Or against God for what you don't have. Or what they do have. Envy is a work of the flesh. Provoking is a work of the flesh. It's rooted in pride, conceit, and empty glory. And if we're not walking in the spirit. We will foster An environment for conceit in our hearts. And rather than love others and serve others and do good to others, we will provoke others, compete against others, trample over others, envy others. Instead of orienting ourselves correctly towards others, we will simply use and run over other people. In chapter 6, Paul shows us the opposite of provoking and envying. It's life in the Spirit lived out relationally. Because that's how we're to live, by the Spirit. And how we relate to other people. And that's what you see as you jump down with me. Jump down to verses 7 and 8. Live by the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit. Same thing. Synonyms here. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, he'll reap. One who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh what? He'll reap corruption, right? But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He gives us two ways to live. Right? There's two fields in life to which we can sow in. He gives us a farming illustration. We're all spiritual farmers. We're either either sowing to the flesh or we're sowing to the spirit. We're doing one or the other. And if we sow to the spirit, if we live by the spirit, if we walk in step with the spirit and keep in step with him, if our lives are spirit-directed and empowered, we will do things in line with the spirit's desire as revealed in the spirit-inspired word. And he says you'll reap eternal life. Now be careful here. This is not works-oriented salvation. This is not karma. Karma. Right? You do enough in this life that's good and it'll turn out well for you in the next life, whatever that is. That's karma. That, that, that's not this. It's not works, salvation. No. What you're sowing is revealing what you're going to reap. Think about that. I'm telling you, the person who has been aligned and unified, is in union with Christ and has been changed by Christ, they are going to sow to the Spirit as a general rule in their life because they are going to reap eternal life. Here's the good news of the Gospel. Ultimately, we reap what we didn't sow. We reap what Jesus sowed. We sowed sin, death, and hell. But in Christ, we reap eternal life because Christ sowed His righteousness, right, for us. And He died the death that we deserve to die. But as those who have been aligned with Christ, as those who have come under Christ, as those who have been forgiven by Christ, we begin to sow to the Spirit instead of to the flesh. And we reap eternal life. That's the destiny of the believer. But if you live according to the flesh, he says, if you're living like you do not know God, don't expect to be shocked on judgment day. That's kind of the point. Don't expect one day to kind of go, man, I live like the devil my whole life and I'm shocked to find out that God is going to you know, let me in the pearly gate, so to speak. That's a great country song. It's not gospel Christianity. Right. Listen, if we sow to the flesh our whole life, he says, listen, you're going to, you're not, you're going to reap destruction. That's the, Paul's warning them again, just like he was in Galatians 5. Do not be shocked, folks. Those who do these things, right? And he gives the list. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What you're sowing is revealing what you're ultimately going to reap. God can't be mocked, He says. His justice can't be sneered at. You can't turn your nose up at God. You can't get away with it. You You can't turn your back and ignore His holiness and get away with it. His justice and get away with it. Everyone reaps what they sow. Everyone. That's a universal principle. Just like gravity, what goes up must come down. I'm telling you spiritually, you reap what you sow in life. It's all through Proverbs. It's all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's one of the just clearest principles in the Bible as we reap what we sow. In other words, there's consequences for our sin. And so Paul is warning them, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption or decay or ruin. Sin destroys. It destroys. It corrupts. It decays. It kills. And believer, you say, "Whoa! glad I escaped that. We can sow to the flesh too. Yes, your general life should be oriented towards the Spirit and sowing the things of the Spirit, but any believer at any time can sow to the flesh instead of the Spirit. We're always sowing in one field or the other. And while a life dominated by sowing the flesh instead of the Spirit will ultimately lead to eternal ruin, in season and in moments and in decision and at times in our own days, in our lives, Christian, we can sow to the flesh as well. And when we sow the flesh to the flesh in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships... In our moral choices, in our thought life, in our budgets, in our work life, we will reap decay and ruin and corruption. Sin always destroys. It's a general principle that Paul's wanting to get through our heads. Sin comes with a price. You say, well, Jesus took that price for me. He absolutely took that price for you. The ultimate price. No Christian will ever reap hell. A Christian, or any person, can be forgiven any sin in Christ. But you can't escape every consequence. That's the law of sowing and reaping. You don't have to reap hell. Christian, you will not reap hell. But man, when you sin against them, there's no guarantee you they will forgive you. There's no guarantee your boss won't fire you. There's no guarantee you won't go to jail. There's no guarantee that you won't cause... Incredible damage to your, to your relationship with others, to your testimony, to your character that won't be able to be fully repaired in this life. We reap what we sow. That's what he's talking about here. Now, the big idea of chapters 5 and 6 are this. Sow, sow to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Live by the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. Walk in the Holy Spirit. If we do this, we will not provoke and envy one another. We will not be filled with empty glory and conceit. We'll be led by the Spirit. So we'll, we'll, we'll be filled with humility. And we'll think in line with the gospel and in our identity with Christ. And our lives will begin to look different. Because as we live differently, our lives will look different. So what our lives should look like. That's next. We know what we should live like. What, what should be true about us. We're sowing to the Spirit, not to the flesh. So what does, that, what does that look like? If we're living by the Spirit and sowing to the Spirit, it's going to affect how we treat other people. Spirit-led people like I said, are others oriented. The Spirit gets our eyes off of us and gives us a proper view of us, grounded in the gospel, and empowers us then to see others and then to love others and to serve others and to do good to others. And he gives three clear ways here. Um, there's multiple ways. He's dealing with a particular church that needed to hear these particular things. But there's other ways, obviously. But here's three of the ways he lists here. First of all, he talks about will be about the business of restoring the fallen. Restoring the fallen. He says, "If any Brothers, if anyone's in any transgression, that's chapter 6, verse 1. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What do you do with a sinning Christian? What do you do when the person you look up to fails? What do you do in those situations? When someone who's supposed to be godly does ungodly things. Paul says you restore them. It's correcting them and getting them back on course is what the word means. Getting them back walking with the Spirit. Getting them back to a place where they are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and in line with what the Holy Spirit would want for them in their life. Notice, it's any sin. If you commit any transgression, there is a myriad of sins a Christian can be caught up in and it's not our job to pick and choose which one. We're willing to restore people, reach out to people, to love people, to serve others and to care for others. Any transgression. Our goal is to get them back walking with God. Now notice, it's a call to spiritual people. Now what does that mean? You say, well, I'm not very spiritual. That's not Listen, what it means in context is this. People who are, about, who are all about living by the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Right? That's, that's the context. And so when he says spiritual people, that should be any Christian. Any Christian. Because we're all supposed to be... He doesn't mean that's the preacher's job, the pastor's job, or the deacon's job, or whatever, you know church staff members' job. No, it's anybody who's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a command. That is what every Christian is supposed to be about. And this is huge because what it shows us is that Sunday morning church is not simply an event. It's not a small concert with a a talk attached at the end. It's not a TED talk. It's not a conference. A church is not simply an organization. What it shows us is that this is a family affair. Restoring, listen, it may involve loving rebuke, but the goal is restoration. Biblical church discipline. Biblical church discipline is really church restoration. That's the goal of it. Notice how we are to restore them. He says, with gentleness and watchfulness. A spirit of gentleness, he says. This was a medical word used in their time to describe resetting bones. Think about that. How painful it is, or would be, to have a bone reset. How careful they would be to reset a bone, being very careful about how they go, very gentle. It's like when you're watching a football game and somebody gets hurt. And they're so careful. Don't touch him, don't touch him, right? He's laying there on his back. They're careful, they, they're trained in how they're going to go about this. They're, they're very tender with how they approach this, making sure there's no neck injury. Can you move your fingers? Can you move your toes? And they'll take their time, right? They'll pause the TV, the game, as long as they need to be paused to make sure they attend to that person, any injured athlete in a situation like that. But they don't just leave them out. They're not so sensitive. They're not so gentle that they're just kind of like, I hope he gets up and he's okay. That's not gentleness. That's cold-heartedness. That's neglect. There's initiative, there's, there's a going, but there's, but there's a gentleness in the approach. And that's what he's calling us to. It's the golden rule. That's how, you, how, do you, how do I know if I'm gentle and how I go about this? Follow the golden rule. Jesus said what, right? You want to treat others like you want to be treated. That's, like, that's a scriptural principle, right? As we love others, we'll, we'll treat them like we'd, we'll put ourselves in their shoes. And so when I think about having to confront somebody about sin, it helps me to think, how would I want to be approached? Right? What's the respect? Because and I try to think to myself, okay, well if I was in that situation, I don't know how I would respond, but in this situation, not in that situation, and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, how would I hope someone would approach me? How would I hope that they would deal with me? And that helps God us. Gentleness. Gentleness. And a spirit of watchfulness, because we too can be tempted. Humble, understanding and knowing that we're not above being in the same situation the next day. No, being very careful because in some situations of restoration, there might be specific temptations that are there for you, depending on how you're wired or what the situation is or what the sin is you're dealing with. And I I think of it like this. If if there was someone that was hanging off of a cliff and they're about to fall, am I going to help them? Yes. Am I going to be careful? Yes. Why? Because I can go off the cliff with them. Right? So I'm going to be careful about how I'm doing it. I'm going to make sure I'm secure. I'm going to make sure I'm stable. I'm going to make, I'm going to be, I'm not going to be so arrogant, so prideful to think, well, I won't get myself in that exact situation because I absolutely can. So I'm going to be careful in how I approach them. Humble enough to realize that I can go off the same cliff. That's what he's called. Be watchful, be careful because you too can be tempted. Listen, a lot of churches Unfortunately, are known for being too judgmental, too legalistic, harsh, or hypocritical and libertine. Cavalier in their approach to sin. Swing to one side of the pendulum or the other. Either they don't confront sin at all, or they do so arrogantly and harshly. Let's seek to be a people who confront sin in gentleness and watchfulness because we love people and we love Jesus enough to deal kindly with people for the glory of God. Restoring the fallen. Secondly, we'll be about the business of bearing burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in context, specifically here, it's the burden that comes with their sin. However, I think he's broad on purpose because there's a lot of burdens out there that we're called to bear with others. So yes, the burden that comes with getting down in someone's messy life and helping them out of sin. Listen, that can be a very burdensome situation. There's a lot of baggage that comes with helping somebody out of their sin many times. But also, just in general, in walking in community with others, we're to be about the business of bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, getting involved in the lives of others is hard work. It's messy. It's difficult at times. People aren't easy. They're people. People are people. And people are broken. And we're all a little bit weird. We all are. We're unique. That's the word. We're unique. We have unique temptations. We have unique trials. We have unique hardships. We have unique personalities in how we respond to things. We have unique burdens. And we have to get close enough to people to share the load they're carrying in this life. This can't be done in a handshake time on Sunday morning. It can't be done just simply passing by somebody and saying hi on the way to small group time. It can't be programmed into the church this takes time. It takes life on life over the course of time as we get involved in people's life and get to know people. It takes presence. It takes presence. You ever tried to move alone? You ever tried that? It's hard. <laughs> it stinks. I don't care if you've got a billion people helping. Moving stinks, right? And there's nothing worse, though, if you don't have enough help when you move, right? Because everything's... You just get that much tired. Everything gets that much heavier. Well, listen. When somebody is bearing their burden alone... That is difficult. That gets heavy. That gets tiresome. That causes people to grow weary spiritually and physically and emotionally. Listen, I've been through difficult seasons and I've tried to go through them alone. Burdensome seasons. And I can tell you there's a difference in walking through it alone and walking through it with people. So he says, bear others' burdens. When we bear others' burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What does that mean? The general teaching principle of Christianity. What Christ taught in his teaching can be summed up in this. Because what Jesus said, what I give you a new commandment. Love one another. One another. Love one another. So we fulfill the law of Christ when we're about the busy, uh, business of loving one another. And you know we're loving one another when we're willing to bear the burden. He says if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. Not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. He "Oh now what does this mean? It seems a little confusing. Almost seems like he's contradicting himself. He's back to the idea of conceit. The idea of thinking wrongly about yourself. If we do that, we won't be willing to bear the burdens of others. Pride and conceit leads to provoking and envying but it doesn't lead to burden bearing. <laughs> I tell you, pride kills practical Christianity. Because prideful people end up putting themselves on an island where they don't connect with others, they don't serve others, they don't bear the burdens of others, they distance themselves from others because all they're looking for is what they can get from others. This past week, we watched a movie called Wonder. Ever seen that movie? It's out right now. I think it might have been nominated for some stuff. I don't know. But it's about this about this kid that's born with this condition. His parents have this weird gene thing that, like, a few people in the whole world can possibly have, and they have it. And so their son looks different than other kids. We'll just leave it at that. And he has, like, 20-something surgeries before he's even hits fifth grade. All kinds of cosmetic surgeries and everything. And his mom's homeschooling him. And, and then about fifth grade, they decide, we've got to get him out there in the world because he's got to learn to live looking so different, Right? And so he, go, he starts fifth grade, right? It's his first entry into the school. And I'm not ruining the movie for you, but let me just say, kids are mean sometimes. Not your kids, everybody else's. <laughs> not my kids, right? Your kids, I'm just kidding. Now, kids are mean sometimes. Can be cruel sometimes. And there's one particular kid in the movie that's just a jerk. There's no other way to say it. He's just mean to the kid. And what you end up seeing over the course of the movie is every other kid as they relate to this kid and as they learn how to do life with this kid as they get to know this kid you see them grow you see them mature you see them get better they kind of they, they rise so to speak this one kid's like on an island and it's because he's so proud and he's so, he thinks he's better than this kid and he's constantly provoking this kid and he's just left there that's what happens when we are not willing to think rightly about ourselves pride and conceit puts us on an island where not only do we end up bearing, not bearing the burdens of others, we don't get the growth and the experience and the work in our life that can come about from actually doing that. It's good spiritual exercise to bear the burdens of others. And we're to test our own work, he says. We aren't to compare ourselves to our neighbor. See, someone will say, oh, I'm so godly. I don't sin like that. They wouldn't say it out loud. they think it. I don't have that burden in my life because I didn't commit that kind of sin. Right? That's how some people... See, they're in that situation because they did that. I never did that. Not in that situation. My mama raised me different. My daddy raised me different. I was taught different than that. And it begins to look down on others. And that will kill burden bearing. You only add more burdens to the broken and the hurting when you think that way. It says test your own work. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. You will answer to God for you, not how you do in comparison to your neighbor. There's something each person must bear alone, as Stott says. John Stott says, he's speaking to two different words here when he says about bearing the burden, and he says carrying your own load. He uses two different Greek words because he's talking about two different things. When he talks about carrying your own load, he's talking about, listen, everybody's going to have to answer to God for themselves. I can bear a burden with you, but I can't answer to God for you. You're going to answer to God for what you do and how you respond to the things in your life. I'm going to answer to God for what I do and how I respond to the things in my life. We each must stand before God alone so to speak. So he's calling us here to humility, self-awareness, not self-absorption. He's calling us to love others in a spirit-led life that leads us towards others and engaging others and serving others and bearing the burdens of others. And thirdly, he calls us to restore the fallen, he calls us to bear burden-bearing, and he also calls us to do good to all, doing good to all. So we're restoring, we're bearing, and we're doing. Let us not grow weary, he says in chapter 6, verse 9, of doing good. So he's given more of a general rule here, a general principle. We're about the business of doing good because of the good that's been done. We're not doing good for goodness sake. We're, not doing, we're doing good because of what's been done. Because of what Christ has done for us. And from a spirit of thankfulness and rest in the finished work of Christ, we're not doing good in blessing others and serving others because we're trying to get something from them or trying to get something from God. We're doing it because we're captivated by what Christ has done for us. Just as the believer will love because they're loved, they will do good because good has been done to them. And when you realize that and it clicks, it'll motivate us to serve and do good and get involved in the lives of others. We are doing good because of the good that's been done. Who are we to do good to? He says, everyone. Everyone. Jesus even said, love your enemies, right? There's no one outside the realm of your blessing. Think about that. There's no one that should be outside the realm of our praying for them and serving them and loving them in some way and whatever the con- condition may call for. Now, this is why we actively are involved or try to, and, and give and we budget for things like giving to certain ministries outside of our own. Because we want to do good to everyone. We want to do good to everyone. And there are ministries that are connecting with people we don't always necessarily get to connect with on a daily basis. But we want to be about the business of doing good to them. If nothing else, we want to help them financially or we want to serve in some way. It might sound silly, but it's why we invite people to Easter. It's why we share the gospel with people. Because we know the good that's been done. And so we want to do good to others. And there is no greater good than leading somebody to Christ. It's a good we can all do. And he says, especially, especially about doing good to the household of faith, he says. Do good to all. Then he says, if we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the church. That's a nice word for church, body of Christ, the body of believers. That's why I give here first. Doesn't mean I'm not willing to give other places. I give here first because I prioritize the household of faith. He said, why does he say especially? Why does he especially, say especially be about doing good to the household of faith? Listen, we get all, well, what does that mean? Because he says do good to everyone. He says especially do good to the household of faith. That makes me uncomfortable. Almost kind of like we're, we're, we're about doing good to the church, but we're not about doing good to those outside the church. No, 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 no. He says do good to everyone. If I told you, listen, I love your kids, and I especially love my kids, do you think that's weird? No. If I, say, if I say, hey, I want to help you, but I especially want to help my family. Does that sound weird? No. And I don't think Paul means for this to sound weird. He's saying, do good to everyone. Love everyone. Serve everyone. Especially your spiritual family. Because here's the thing. If we don't do good there, we ain't doing good nowhere else. We're deceiving ourselves. I've never seen someone neglect their family but be great at serving others. I've never seen someone that loved children but didn't love their own. It starts with those closest to us. It starts at home. And this includes sharing in the ministry. It's part of the good he talks about. Look at verse 6. Seems kind of strange. Seems kind of out of place. There's almost like some proverbial statements here as he wraps up the book. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. He's calling here for the word there, share all good things, is the Greek word for fellowship. It's koinonia. It's the word you see in Acts when it talks about their sharing. It's especially here speaking between pastors and the churches that they lead. In context. The idea here is partnership in ministry. Pastors and the church are in ministry together. Church leaders and the church are in ministry together. It's a ministry that we share. The Spirit will lead us into a church and then He will lead us to get involved in that church and lead us to support the ministry of that church. That's the big idea here. So pastors share from God's Word and the church should share what God is doing in their life through the Word. That's one application of this. Right? That encourages pastors greatly. When people say, man, God taught me this or God's teaching me this or God showed me this or whatever. Through the teaching ministry that encourages people. It encourages your small group leader when you do that. It's sharing in together what's being done. But it's more than that. It has very clear financial overtones as well. He's talking about financial partnership as well. Yes, awkwardly, he's talking about salaries. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about less than that, and he is talking about more than that. So in our context, he would say church members are supposed to contribute to the church budget, which does things like pay the bills and keep the lights on, help us do ministry and help us serve others, and yes, pay the salaries of pastors and staff and all that stuff that nobody likes to talk about, especially pastors and staff. But the New Testament does. Here and in First Timothy. And it's, it's a partnership. Is that? It's not a bartering. That's not what he's saying. It's not like going to a movie and you paid for your ticket. And you get a service. No. It's a partnership. It's koinonia. It's fellowship together. Around the word. And you're asking people to give of their lives and give of their time. To devote it to the advancement of the cause of the church. And to the teaching of the word of God and all those sort of things. And the church gives of their resources so that that person can give of their time. That's all. And those people can give of their time. That's the picture here. It's all part of the doing good as we're oriented towards the things of the Spirit. Now look down at verse 9. After he talks about sowing to the Spirit and doing good to everybody, he he gives us a warning. He says, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary. There is always a danger when living a Spirit-dominated life that you can be tempted as you restore people, that you can grow weary as you do good. Listen, the Christian life is not a safe life. There, there's the temptation. There's the, there's the chance that we grow weary, that we grow tired at some point. They say, don't grow weary. Don't give up. See, people are people, and we're, in, we're, we're, we're fin- finite. We have limitations. We, we sin, and we grow physically tired, and we grow emotionally tired, and we grow tired of others. And we need the Spirit's help to press on. We show weariness when we get impatient. Right? We, get impatient we start getting short with others. Or we show weariness when we get indifferent to the needs of others. We kind of roll our, eyes, roll our eyes. Oh, here we go again. Or we go cynical. Church members, we can, Christians, we can be so cynical. Because we've seen it all, we say. Seen this one before. Seen them do that before. Been through this before. I can tell you right now what that's, where that's going to lead to. We can get very cynical. That's just a sign that we're growing weary of doing good. You ever seen a kid without a nap? I live it, right? I've got three. One that's kind of growing out of the nap phase, unfortunately. And two that are very much in the nap phase. And my three-year-old, if she don't get her nap, she is not fun. Weary people are scary people, okay? (laughs) And that's true at three, and it's true at 35, and it's true at 45 and 65 and 85. It's true, okay? Weary people can be scary. We, we get impatient and we get indifferent and we get cynical and we throw our tantrums because we're tired and we're emotionally tired. And if you're, if you're physically tired, you'll get emotionally tired. And at some point, you'll get spiritually tired. All this, We're holistic people and we're to not grow weary, he says, so we need to... Yes, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, take care of ourselves physically. Yes, take care of ourselves emotionally. But notice what he points to. We are to, we are to stay going by remembering that we're going to reap. That's what he, you will reap. You will reap if you don't give up. We need a vision of tomorrow to help us in hard days. The gospel gives us a certain one. We will Blessing others, bearing burdens, restoring sinners, ministering to the hurting, sharing the gospel, praying for people, may be a thankless role at times in this world. But the day of reaping will come. We may not reap in this life, but we will reap for eternity. He says, keep your eyes there. Keep your focus there. We are alive to God and empowered by God for the sake of serving and doing good to others. This is only possible, though, because of the gospel. Now look with me in verses 11 through 18. I told you I was going to save it to the end. This is Paul's conclusion to his letter. We're going to read it together. How this is possible. This is how it's possible. How it's possible. Is, I'm going to pull that out of right, right here. I want you to look at verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is probably not due to eye condition. It's probably due to emphasis. Um, a lot of times Paul would use somebody else to write his letters out for him and he would dictate to him. He might have grabbed the whatever right here and write, writing. Real, I'm putting emphasis, underline, bold, exclamation marks. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and out of the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, circumcision, but a new creation. And it's for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's talking about his persecutions that he had taken there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul brings the letter to an end. And he shows with emphasis, right, with his handwriting there we talked about. He's he's wrapping up the letter. He's going back to old themes that we've already talked about. He brings back the false teachers into the picture. He's talking about the flesh again, right? How is it all possible that we live by the Spirit? How is it possible that we practically do good to others? How is it all possible? It's only possible because of the gospel. He says, listen, these false teachers, they're flesh-oriented. Not spirit-oriented. That's why they want you to be circumcised. So they can boast in your flesh. They're not willing to bear the persecution that comes with looking at some of the Jewish unbelievers at that time and saying, listen, it's not about keeping the law. It's not about being circumcised. It's not about becoming Jewish. It's about the cross. And it's about faith in Christ and Christ alone. They're not willing to do that. So just, they'll just tell you to get circumcised. Make it easy on them. Be- become Jewish, Gentiles. He says, they're dominated by their flesh. They're not dominated by the Spirit. And notice Paul. He says, my boast is not in the flesh like the false teachers. It's in the cross. It's back to identity. Union with Christ. Through the cross, he says, the world has been crucified to Him and Him to the world. What's he mean by that? When, what we've talked about, when I place my faith in Christ. It's like when Christ died, I died. Christ rose, I rose. I'm dead to sin. He's reminding them once again, we're dead to sin. Dead to the world and worldly temptations. We're dead to that. Alive to God. By faith, united with Christ. See, the Christian is no longer dominated by the flesh or the world system. By the power of the gospel, we have been changed and we're now dominated by the Spirit of God. He sums it up. It's not about circumcision. It's not about human effort. It's not about works creation. He says, it's about a new creation. And the only way to become a new creation is by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And every new creation has the Spirit of God. And every new creation wants to sow to the Spirit instead of the flesh. And so every new creation wants to restore and wants to bear burdens and wants to do good. Because, not because that's the way we've always been. Not because it's our personality type. Because we're new people. And the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our life. So Paul ends the book where he began it, the gospel. There's a false gospel that says, man, go your own way, make your way, do it your way, earn your way, be good enough, whatever. And there's the true gospel which says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through Him. Repent of your sin, place your faith in Christ, and He will change you from the inside out. Paul comes back to that here. He leaves us with the cross. He leaves us with grace. He leaves us with the gospel because it's only by those means that we become new people who are no longer dominated by the flesh. Church, the gospel frees us to, yes, live by the Spirit. And as our lives are dominated by the Spirit and not us, we are free to truly love and do good to others, to not use and abuse, and neglect, and envy, and provoke others, but to serve them in Jesus' name, to do good to them, to be others-oriented. We said this at the beginning of the message, big idea, by the power of the gospel, we are alive to God and empowered by the Spirit to serve and do good to others. Are we sowing to the Spirit, though, is the question. Are we loving and serving, doing good to others? What steps do you need to take this morning, to better orient your life towards others? Where's the Spirit wanting to move you? Who's He wanting to move you toward? God's Spirit is always moving towards the hurting. He's always moving into ministry. If we're not going into ministry, if we're not going into the lives of the lost, if we're not going into the lives of the hurting, we're probably not listening and following. Church, are we sowing to the Spirit? And have you experienced the power of the gospel in your life? Has it broken the power of sin in your life? Is your life characterized by works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit? Are your relationships flesh-driven or Spirit-led? By the power of the Gospel, are you a new creation? Have you been made brand new? If not, the good news of the Gospel is no matter what you've done, no matter what, anything you can think of, in the ways that you can rebel and run from God, you can play the hypocrite your entire life, you can run out and be immoral your entire life, but in the Gospel, you can be made a new person. A new creation through faith in Christ. Have you been made a new creation? Let's pray.